and welcome to another episode of Downtime with the Cranston Public Library. We're a podcast for cool people who love libraries where we talk about what we've been reading, what we've been watching, and what we've been loving. I'm your host, Taylor, and the branch librarian at the Oaklawn Branch Library. My pronouns are she, her. My name is Astra Drew. I'm the archivist at the Steamship Historical Society in Warwick, Rhode Island, and I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Uh, a little bit later in the show, we will talk about the Steamship Historical Society. But before we jump into that, let's start off as we always do with what have you been reading? I tend to read multiple things at once. I like to keep my options open with different uh, genres usually. So one book I'm reading is actually a archives-related book called Archives Power, uh, Memory, Accountability, and Social Justice by Randall C. Jimerson. And it's it's interesting. It's pretty uh, in-depth in terms of the history of, of archives and how they've intersected with uh, government and uh control of, of, of people and populations um, and has brought up a lot of historical details and things that I didn't really know or, or understand before. So it's been an interesting read so far. And outside of that, I just finished the book Going Postal by Terry Pratchett. Uh, been, that's been Terry Pratchett in general and like the Discworld novels have been recommended to me endlessly. And that was the first one I just happened to, to pick up and I cannot recommend it more. It's a lot of fun and the world building is really, really great. And uh, it's it's immersive and, and just a good time. And I can't wait to read more. It's it's gonna, it's, it's fun. <laughs> Discworld has been recommended to me a lot, including a recent guest we had on previously. So I feel like the universe is telling me that now is the time that I need to get involved um, but I've also been kind of exploring a little bit of nonfiction recently um, to do kind of some like work on myself via books. <laughs> yeah. um, and I am hoping to have a fiction and nonfiction going at the same time. Um, I'm hoping to soon adopt what I will name the Emily Jabinski method because uh, she talked about it when she came on our podcast. For people who haven't listened to that episode, she is the incoming president of the American Library Association. And we talked to her um, back in May when she visited the Rhode Island Library Association. So go back and check that episode out if you want to hear it in depth. But basically she talks about that she reads nonfiction in the morning and then she reads like fun pleasure reading at night. Um, a good approach. Yeah. But I felt like I needed a book related accessory in order to start this because the only part of my morning routine that I feel like I could have inserted reading a book in is while eating breakfast, but you can't hold the book and eat. So I'm waiting for this, like, well, it's acrylic. I didn't invest in a glass one. I just bought an acrylic one over Amazon, but they come in glass too. And it's basically like this book weight but it, that's clear in the shape of a book. And so you put it on top of the book and it holds the book open without yeah. like hands-free. So I'm excited for that to come in. That would have a dual purpose of holding the book open while I'm eating and also protecting library books from the messy person that is me <laughs> while trying idea. to multitask. So <laughs> yeah. I'm excited for that and wanted to share a little bit of book-related, I hate to say tech because it's pretty low tech, but book-related accessories um, oh, yeah. with our audience. Um, and I'll, I'll 
try to remember to report back and see if uh, <laughs> if it works for me. Um, but besides that, on a little more like fun personal reading note, um, I just finished book one of Clementine by Tilly Walden. I recently went to the ALA conference and saw a free copy of book two in the exhibition hall and totally just saw it, saw Tilly Walden and was like, I want that uh, and <laughs> grabbed it, made one of my colleagues take it back in her suitcase because I already had spent that morning Jenga-ing my suitcase to fit the other <laughs> books that I had got the day before um, and did not realize it was book two. Did not realize it was meant to be part of the Walking Dead world, which I've never read or watched The Walking Dead. But I don't think you need to. So I I got home, realized I had book two, requested book one from the library, got it, read it. And I think as long as you go into it knowing like it's a zombie apocalypse story, I think that's really all of the world knowledge you need to know going into it. Um, but yeah, basically I was intrigued by... Tilly Walden's like take on post-apocalyptic zombie kind of story. And it was giving me kind of like a Last of Us vibe almost. But like if Ellie never met Joel and was like on her own the whole time. Um, so that's kind of why I was intrigued about it. And um, I enjoyed it. The art style was, and I think it's probably like a marrying of the the Walking Dead world and her own art style. The art style was pretty dark. Um, like just black and white. And there were a lot of like a lot of details, but a lot of details like in dark colors, like almost like when you're watching Game of Thrones and you're like, what's going on in that dark corner? Do I need to adjust the settings of my television? Um, it was kind of like that. But overall, I thought it was a very enjoyable story. And I'm excited to read book two and continue to hear about Clementine's exploits as a, a young woman navigating a zombie apocalypse world and being not very trusting of other people around her. Yeah. That sounds like kind of an intense uh, thing to, to pick it up. It was on. intense. But. It was intense. <laughs> I read it at the beach. So I don't know if it like evened out that I was like calming place, intense story <laughs> made it like in the middle for me. Yeah. Do you usually go for zombie media or is that something that you like? I've, I was never really a zombie like media person, partially because my mother has like a very strict no zombie rule. Mm. Like she does not enjoy that media at all. And so like when I was living with them, it was just like something I never explored because it was like something my mom didn't really want to see. And I didn't have it like, I didn't have so much of an interest to like watch it on my own. Um, but then I watched my partner play The Last of Us, the game, and I did really enjoy it because it really, I mean, zombies are in it. And obviously a big part of the gameplay is like navigating a world that's filled with monsters that want to fill you with fungi. Um, mm -hmm. Well, I guess fungus, just the one. Uh, <laughs> very specific fungus, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a very specific fungus that they want to fill you with. Um, but... I did really enjoy it because it I think the story is really about human beings and trauma mm -hmm. and how how human beings deal with like the worst case scenario. Um, 
And so when the show came out, I was very eager to watch it, even though my partner was like, I think you're going to think it's scary. And I was like, I didn't think the game was that scary. He also, he also like has this kind of like fear of zombies, but he still will like, he still read World War Z and played The Last of Us multiple times over. It's like this weird thing that like he has this fear, but he's like fully cognizant of the fear and knows that it's irrational and therefore (laughs) just like works through it like a grounded well-adjusted human being so uh, <laughs> supposed to me who all my irrational fears I just go like eh, no and then I yeah. avoid them um <laughs> but so he's like I think you're gonna think it's scary and I was like I don't know I didn't think the game was that scary I don't know like for me I don't find it fearful because it feels like something that will never happen even mm. though the show does kind of do a thing where in the beginning of making you be like but this could happen though. But then I read an article <laughs> after the show came out where someone was like, I'm a scientist and this very likely would not ever happen. Um, so that made me feel better. Yeah, that made me feel better. So yeah, zombies, I, I always felt like it, it always felt very fictional and very not in the realm of possibilities for me. So that's why I never found it like terribly scary. Um, huh. That's very yeah. different from my experience of it. Uh, <laughs> I'm one of the sorts of people who dream very vividly. And um, so nightmares are that much worse, I guess. Um, So I used to have recurring nightmares involving zombies. And, uh, and I really only like managed to get over it by, um, uh, well, I started lucid dreaming for one, which is fun. And uh, uh, but also one of my friends gave me this book uh, or lent it to me rather the like a zombies or survival guide book. <laughs> yeah. And I, I can't remember the title of it now, but uh, um, but I read it very purposefully. Right. Like if I like implant this into my subconscious somehow, like maybe my it'll you know, I'll be able to to be lucid about it. And it worked. And I was able to to kind of literally kill my uh, my recurring nightmares with uh with zombies through that through that tactic but it's still still like zombie media and all that stuff it's still kind of like just i don't know squicks me out i can't can't do it (laughs) so i give you i give you a lot of credit yeah for for engaging with it um and and uh did you say it was your partner who still has that fear and was it yeah sorry yeah no it is my part but it's weird where i'll be like we don't have to do this if you don't want to and he's like oh i read world war z i loved it the movie wasn't as good because they really didn't do a good adaptation of the book (laughs) and i was like you read world war z and watch World War Z, which, if I remember correctly, is fast zombies, right? It's right. not like, it's yeah. It's like worse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, that sounds like a bad time for me. Um, yeah. Like, at least slow <laughs> zombies. Maybe I might be able to outrun them. I've had conversations with friends in the past that is like, they were like, you go to the top floor of some place and then you destroy the staircase. Right. There's tactics you can yeah. use. And there's <laughs> even like a comedic element if yeah. they're like really slow and kind of dumb. Yeah. Like they're, if they're, yeah, like 28 days later style fast zombies. Absolutely not. No, thank you. No, yeah, thank so you. So that's why I, that's why I was like, so you like read and then watched the movie. So you visually watched it with your eyes, these, these like <laughs> fast zombies and was like, yeah. Yeah, so I don't know. <laughs> he went through, like you, I think he kind of went through the process and, and got over his fear, but he still, like, he still will say to me, like, I, fi- like, I find them very scary um, mm. and I'm afraid of zombies, but then he's just, like, really chill about it, which is kind of just, like, 
his vibe for the most part. I think that's why we get on well, because like I'm the anxious one and he's like the one who's like, is this that you're saying right now rooted in reality? And I'll be like, (laughs) no, thank you for that. It's a good, it's a good question. Good good tactic. Take it through that exercise. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah. So after that, Real side tangent on zombies. Um, <laughs> if you like The Walking Dead or if you like Tilly Walden and know nothing about The Walking Dead, maybe check out Clementine. Yeah, I'm, well, I'm, I know I, uh, my husband is into that, into zombie stuff, too. So I'll, I'll check it out for, for his sake. Maybe he would enjoy it, too. But now that we got in the weeds about the book, before we move on, is there any um, TV or other media that you want to share with our audience. Oh, man. Um, gosh, off the top of my head, um, a podcast that I've, I've been really liking is, uh, old gods of Appalachia. Uh, it's, it's a horror podcast. I'm pretty sure that's the correct title. I may have gotten it slightly wrong, but, uh, it's a, it's, it's horror. It's a horror sort of, um, universe. Uh, but it's all, uh, set in Appalachian towns and uh, weaves in American folklore and folk traditions and customs like folk magic and stuff, you know, legends and stuff. Um, some of which is sort of familiar to me as someone who's always been interested in folklore and just reads a lot of folk tales and and uh, that sort of those sort of stories. Um, so I think that's probably why I gravitated toward it a bit because it has it has that sort of feel to it. Um, but, uh, it's really well written, it's well put together and, uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. So I guess we we're both on a horror, horror train. It (laughs) seems like zombies, zombies and, and weird, uh, witchcraft in the woods. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's a podcast that I've been really enjoying. And, um, otherwise in terms of, uh, TV, I just started watching the bear and, I've been, I understand the hype. The hype is, the hype is real and and true. It's really, I find it's also very well done and and interesting. A lot of my friends work in the restaurant industry, um, my siblings too. And uh, so it's fun to see how they capture that and, um, you know, have that sort of uh, being the cultural center of of the show. It's neat. I recommend it. Yeah, I'll have to check that out because, again, you know, hearing the hype about it and being someone who I love food, I love cooking shows. I mean, I know it's like, you know, narrative fiction, not like a cooking show, but about food and the and the like the kind of industry I think I would find um, very interesting. Um uh, the, this is another thing that has been well discussed on the podcast, mm-hmm. but my partner and I frequently disagree on <laughs> what to watch. Um, I think I just like generally like TV more than he does. Um, uh, like I grew up kind of like, I don't want to say like I was raised by a television, like that my parents were inattentive, but like TV was always on in their house and TV mm-hmm. was always like a thing that would like bring us together in the evenings so yeah. yeah, I have I have a great fondness for TV where frequently mm-hmm. he's like, 
I could be reading or watching a movie where we spend two hours watching it and then it's done. And that was the amount of investment that we needed to make in the story. And he's also like very critical of adaptations of things Mm. like he frequently will have read the book so like we go into watching an adaptation of like i haven't read the book but he has so i'm just coming into the story like just whatever the tv show yeah whatever the tv show is going to present to me sounds good Mm -hmm. um but him having read the book he'll be like they added all of this tv drama to it that wasn't in the book and i'll be like you mean the things that make it a compelling tv show to watch um yeah that's such and that's such a i was talking about this with a friend the other day actually like how important it is to to watch the tv version or movie version before watch it first uh because yeah because unfortunately that's what often happens you have this expectation, especially if you really love the book or book series, whatever it may be, um, it's hard to step outside of that when when encountering its its adaptation. And it's, yeah, also like you say, like not the choices that people make when they're making these adaptations are for a reason. <laughs> Sometimes yeah, like to fit yeah. to the format in which right. they're adapting it to. <laughs> like the expanse. We got like to season five out of six of the expanse. And he was like, I can't, he's like, they've done, they've done something unforgivable to the plot of the expanse. And now I'm done. And then even with the wheel of time, he, we watched the first season and we got to the end of the first season. He was like, no, if they make another season of this, you got to watch it by yourself because wow. Yep. (laughs) Would you recommend, would you recommend the wheel of time as like a, as something to watch? I, again, coming in with no knowledge of the books, because that's a real commitment. um, I enjoyed it. I feel like the end got a little bit like weird, even for me that I was like, I had to suspend a lot of disbelief, even for me for the end um, of the first season. But overall, I thought it was really interesting. And I liked the way that they depicted magic on screen, mm-hmm. um, which which uh, my partner did say was very, you know, in line with what how it was described in the books. Um, but I, from like a, a D&D like role play standpoint, like I appreciated that they weren't just like, you know, magic user just being like, pew, pew, like everything being instantaneous, like it yeah. being like, no, you need to have other people around you, like helping you and protecting you because there are casting times for things and you're a glass cannon. Like, right. like I yeah. appreciated that they were like, yeah, no, magic users are very powerful, but very fragile. Um, yeah, interesting. Yeah, having that little just, bit of realism. Yeah, yeah. So I appreciated that. So yeah, if whenever season two comes out, I might watch it because I didn't mind. Yeah, like I don't know some of the again some of the romance drama stuff. He was like, "That's not how it happened in the book. This person would never do this." Blah blah blah. Where I was like, I was just like, "Ooh, are they gonna get together or not?" I'm I'm so <laughs> excited. I'm here for yeah. it. Um. <laughs> the juicy drama yeah. yes oh man that's that's one reason why i'm waiting to read the expanse books um because i um 
fell off the wagon a little bit with watching The Expanse. So I feel like I want to finish it before I even start with the book series for all these reasons that we're talking about. So I don't yeah. get like caught up, you know, and or distracted in that in yeah. that kind of way. I think maybe that's the approach. Sometimes I would put off watching things because I'd be like, well, I want to read the books before watching that thing. Mm. But I think maybe the opposite is the better play. In my experience, that's, that <laughs> certainly has been true. And that is the that is the avenue I would recommend. Yeah. Uh, it's worse when you really love something, too, and you get attached to it. And so I understand. I understand why people get aggravated. But I guess I also just hold it in my mind as like it's like what you were saying in terms of adapting something for a specific venue like TV or something like you have to make certain choices and there's reasons. You have to make it compelling television or yeah. otherwise it's not going to be a successful adaptation. Right. It's not like they're sitting down and saying, OK, how can we break this and annoy <laughs> its fans? Yeah. <laughs> and we'll return to the show after a quick break. Looking for another way to keep up with what's going on at the Cranston Public Library? Sign up for our email newsletter. You'll be among the first to learn about upcoming programs for kids, teens, and adults, and new services and collections coming to your library. Subscribe at cranstonlibrary.org. If you're participating in the 2023 Adult Summer Reading Beanstack Challenge, the secret code for listening to the podcast is subscribe. Again, the secret code is subscribe. Learn more and join the fun at cranstonlibrary.beanstack.com. And remember to drink your Ovaltine. I want us to have enough time to talk about what you came here to talk to us about. So for our audience, could you tell me a little bit about the Steamship Historical Society and what you guys do? Sure. We were founded in uh, 1935 by a small group of guys who were really interested in the passengers, like wooden side wheel passenger ships that were common around uh, this area Um in that time, but you know, 1930s, um, a lot of companies were going under uh, because of the depression, and uh, and also with uh, cars becoming more of a thing in terms of how people were getting around. Um, that also was contributing to a lot of these ships that were very much part of the local culture and 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 these guys how they grew up. They were watching them, you know, go to go to scrap and and uh, or be abandoned. So. Um, they founded the society as a way to preserve that history. Um, but over time, it's really grown to encompass a, much more than just that kind of shipping. Um, our membership includes retired Navy, merchant mariners, people who work on uh, working vessels like container ships and, uh, and tankers and things like that. And uh, so our you know, what we cover at our historical society in our collections and our library is, is pretty broad. Um, uh, I will say that a lot of our material is about ocean liners. Uh, we have a, there's a great deal of interest with that. Um, but we try to keep it, uh, as, as broad as possible. So everybody who is interested in marine and, uh, 
maritime history has something that they can they can latch onto. So, um, and my my role here is to manage those collections. I uh, I answer uh, reference requests and research requests, um, and uh, any any way I can help people access our our collections is what I do. So. To give people an idea of your collection, what are the type of materials that you guys collect or archive? We have a lot of stuff. Um, we have paintings and fine art, uh, large travel posters and lithographs. Um, and uh, our photograph archive is is probably one of the more popular ones. We get a lot of inquiries from people who are doing genealogical research and things like that. So people are looking for pictures related to their family history of, of, uh, of ships. Um, that's, a, that's a big one. Um, and our photograph collections, it encompasses film negatives, uh, photo prints, um, audiovisual material, projection slides, both color and black and white, uh, glass plate, negatives and positives, pretty much every format you can think of. And uh, um, numbering, gosh, I mean, we estimate easily in the millions um, individual uh, images. So um, including uh, historic postcards, which is probably one of my favorite aspects of the, of the collections. And uh, some of it is, is available online through our database. We have some portions of it digitized and published um, and people are free to browse through it and, and search it. And uh, also we have a large paper ephemera collection. So ephemera refers to any paper items that are made for temporary use. For us, that means things like uh, promotional brochures and booklets, brochures that tell you everything about like rates and schedules, deck plans, ship menus, programs, all the, all those things that you would, uh, that you would collect on, on board a ship. And, uh, and my, that's another group that's probably one of my favorites. And because it's the kinds of information that are in there is each individual item, a brochure or booklet, not only tells you a lot about the time period or the vessel or whatever you're you're interested in in terms of informational value, they can also be really beautiful works of art in and of themselves. So uh, they're a lot of fun to look at and uh, and explore for sure. And we're we're slowly trying to digitize more of those and get get those online as individuals uh, as as well. Um, we also have a maritime reference library covers every aspect of maritime history you can think of, whether it's a particular ship or a region of, uh, of uh, shipping, including rivers and waterways, lakes like the Great Lakes, and uh, as well as, you know, uh, oceanic shipping and uh, reference material, shipping registers and periodicals, all manner of things. And uh, you can access that with our online catalog, which is also accessible through our website at sshsa.org. Um, I think that's the quick and dirty. I mean, we have, we have, uh, I mentioned art, photographs, ephemera, our library. Oh, and ship models. We have a lot of different kinds of models. Um, so, uh, and a, a lot of these things are digitized, um, but uh, they're also on display at our, um, at our home at 
in uh, Warwick at 2500 Post Road. Um, we're a small staff, so if you want to come and visit, I recommend calling ahead just to make sure that we're here and someone can show you around. But uh, uh, very much open to the public. Uh, just unfortunately right now it's by appointment. So, yeah. And so uh, we mentioned earlier about the Rhode Island Library Association Conference. You presented uh, at the conference about um, one of your fairly recent projects. So could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So uh, I mentioned our online catalog and our database. Um, another big thing that we have is our educational program. It's called Steaming into the Future. Um, and uh, that's at shiphistory.org. Um, the program is meant to provide educational content um, for grades pre-K through 12, uh, incorporating primary source ar archival material. So a lot of it is sourced from our own collections, but uh, we do occasionally also look to public domain um, images and things like that to kind of flesh out whatever we're talking about. Um, there are articles on there, some digitized items from our library, as well as uh, lesson plans and activities and things that teachers or anyone or researchers in general, anyone um, can use to uh, in, inspire their work or, uh, you know, uh, be as a jumping off place for, for more learning. Um, so uh, what I presented about was our experience of fleshing out that program when um, basically after uh, the events of uh, summer of 2020 with all of the protests after the murder of uh, George Floyd, where um, there was that influx of, I guess, interest. It's It feels weird to say it that way, but uh, interest in... Um, in uh, police violence and and how that affects uh, uh, black people and and uh, and their neighborhoods and their lives, and uh, you know with the um, formation of Black Lives Matter as as a as an organization and a movement. Um, so we were looking at our materials and trying to figure out how we could uh, address that moment and what sort of materials that we have that are were were relevant to the conversations that were happening at that time and uh, uh, uh sadly we were we found a lot of gaps and uh the experience was really reckoning with the kind of bias inherent bias in our collections which had us looking really closely at our at our history as an organization and how we were created and how the collections were brought together. It was a very, you know, interesting process. Um, but it also came at a time, you know, in 2020 when the pandemic like was, was really underway and, and, and frightening. Um, so we had to do a lot of this virtually and distantly from each other. I was working with our educational coordinator, Amy Bachari, who uh, uh, she herself was already a, re a remote worker. So uh, it was, it was, really a story about how we were able to bring together this material and create this um, these resources for people um, while also kind of dealing with these pressures and strict restrictions of, of that moment. Um, and, you know, I also kind of talk about DEI and how we 
tried to incorporate the, those principles before our organization really was having that conversation. Um, so there was no plan or, or you know, uh, rule book to follow. We just kind of did it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's uh, I, I strongly recommend checking out our, our program. Uh, we have a lot of things to explore. Um, and, uh, and yeah, if, if anyone listening has any questions, you need, feel free to reach out, reach out to us and we'd be happy to, to help you out. So did this project ultimately lead to you finding more, I guess, for lack of a better word, diverse materials in the purview of, uh, steamships and, and their history, or is that still like an ongoing process for your organization? Uh, Yes and yes. Um, we we were able to find materials. Uh, so part of part of the difficulty was that um, our organization was run entirely by volunteers for the vast majority of its history. So things like collection policies and uh, collections management in general could be kind of sketchy, and things were either described very fully or not at all. So. Um, Things like subject headings in the library uh, could be kind of spotty. Um, and a lot of our archival holdings, like our photographs and things, weren't really described in a way that made it easy for us to find things that were relevant to what we we're trying to do. So we had to do it in a very oblique kind of roundabout way. Um, but uh, one, one example is... Um, a article that uh, Amy put together um, using a ship log from the Columbia, which was a um, passenger ship that would take people in Detroit to Boblo Island, which was a like a resort theme park at the time. And um, our our um, CEO, he grew up in Detroit and had heard about a story of someone, uh, a young woman being um kicked off of this vessel because she was black. And this was before um, uh, a lot of the, you know, movements, the civil rights movements were really starting to gain momentum. Um, so it was a real precursor to a lot of the legal decisions of that time. And uh, as, as it happened, we have a logbook for that ship that covers that day that, that everything happened. Of course, the logbook entry makes no mention of her, um, but uh, it, it mentions other things like someone who had a heart attack and died on board, but uh, not not this woman being being kicked off because she was the only black person on board. Um, and uh, and that in and of itself is something you can talk about. That's that's a that's an interesting artifact in that way. Um so that was that was one example where we had to, you know, we went around in a kind of a broad circle to try and find things to to talk about these issues and uh, and the the context of that history. Um, so uh, uh, yes, yes, and yes, and yes, and that we were we did find materials and uh, and images and all kinds of things that we can reference and expound upon, but we're, we're definitely still in the process of locating more and also revamping how we think about description in terms of terms and, and standards that 
the in like for instance Library of Congress classification, right? And how that was that whole system was created in a very specific time by by a very specific person. Um, so uh, managing managing that and coming up with new ways and and doing research to see how other people are are addressing these issues in their own work. So uh, it's been a very uh, wild process that I don't, I don't expect to stop anytime soon. This will be something that we continually work on. I hope that answers the question. Yeah, for sure. Um, so is there anything else that you want our listeners to know about the Steamship Historical Society before we wrap up? Sure. Um, I think a lot of people think of steamships and, uh, you know, ship history in general as a very niche sort of topic, but, uh, I would encourage people to think about how ships impact their daily life. It's something like 95% of the goods and commodities that we enjoy every day are brought to us by ship. So um, if it's if it's something that you find you have a hard time relating to, uh, it's, uh, it's because you don't think about it too much or it's not so visible. Um, but uh, that's part of what we're doing is trying to make that connection more visible for people. So I encourage people to check us out online and uh, look at all of the resources that we have available. It's totally free and, and open to use. And whatever you can't find there, I can help you find. So feel free to reach out to us. I had a thought, but I don't want to get us on another tangent. So I think that's a great place to wrap up. Oh, um, no, but I'm so curious now. <laughs> I was gonna, okay, you were saying about shipping, as in like sending goods is one way that people think about it. And I was thinking about back to your comment about genealogy, which surprised me that people were coming to you guys for genealogy questions. But if you think about it until fairly recently, if your family history includes immigration, then your family came here on a ship. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like it people... wasn't till fairly recently that people were immigrating places on planes. Yeah. And, the grand scheme yeah, of things. That, and that was relatively uh, up to a very recent time too. Yeah. I think people think of immigration and they think of, you know, turn of the century sailing ships or, you know, the, like Ellis Island and stuff. Yeah. But I mean, people were immigrating here as recent as the the 50s on, on ships. So... Um, and, and maybe even after that, like the seventies, I think some of our educational content actually covers that too, immigration in terms of much more recent stories. So, um, it, yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of this touches on, on our lives and our, and our own like human history in a very interesting way that people don't often think about. Yeah. So I hope this episode of nothing else encourages everyone to think a little bit more about chips. <laughs> it's a good subject i i i endorse it <laughs> all right so we wrap up the show with a segment i call the last chapter where we talk about a library or bookish related question um so i thought i would ask you do you annotate books that you read in any in any way and if so how you mean like like if i, I do you write take in notes margins? do you highlight yeah are you writing mm -hmm. in margins are you writing in a separate notebook are you highlighting sticky notes I'm going to count that I, all as annotating in some way. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's right. I'm, I'm on board with that. Um, I It really depends on, on the book. Uh, I treat library books as kindly as I possibly can. Um, books that I own, I will, especially if I'm using them for my own research, I will mark them up. I use 
pencil to star things or underline things. Um, so I may be uh, doing that. But otherwise, I, I keep a journal. So I very, very much write down my thoughts in, in that venue. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty low tech, I guess, when it comes to a lot of that sort of thing. <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, I, I, uh, I would say that's how I engage with it the most often. I either am starring things in the margins or, um, I don't often write comments, but, uh, that's always been something that I've enjoyed finding, but I don't personally do that. Maybe I should maybe make it fun for whoever gets the book next. Yeah, I usually don't either. I, I very rarely even underline, but there was one book recently that I read a while ago, a nonfiction book of mine that I did spend a lot of time, you know, highlighting and writing in the margins. And so then it was interesting to go back and look at it now, seeing like what notes are, that I was like, wow, still relevant. Still, you know what I mean? Like still, still feel that and still feel like this section yeah. is important and other ones that it was like, oh, I could see why I had like, you know, why I underlined or why I wrote that note at that time, but now I'm in a different place. Um, so huh. yeah, yeah, it's something that is kind of like, would be interesting to do more of. So then you can revisit it later and which is yeah, I guess, the point of, like of note-taking. Um, yeah. But yeah, visit later <laughs> and just see where you were at that point when you were reading it. <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> All right. So also take away from this episode, write in more books, but as long as they're not the libraries, because then we yes. get very sad. Yeah, um, be kind to libraries. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for joining us and thank you everyone for listening. If you would like to respond to our last chapter question or just reach out to the show, you can do that by emailing us at downtime at cranstonlibrary.org. You can also reach out to us via social media with the hashtag downtimecpl. If you're feeling generous, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts because it helps people find the show. Thank you again for listening. And this has been another episode of Downtime. Downtime is a project of the Cranston Public Library and is produced by Elena Rios, Nomi Haig, Robin Nizio, and me, Taylor Cardillo. Audio engineering by Dave Bartos. Our theme music is Day Trips by Ketza. And our ad music is Happy Ukulele by Scott Holmes. Links to the books and movies discussed can be found in the show notes. Remember to rate and review Downtime on Apple Podcasts. Connect with the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram with the hashtag DowntimeCPL. And if there's something you'd like to hear on the show, send an email to downtime at cranstonlibrary.org. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed are the speaker's own and do not represent those of the Cranston Public Library. The material and information presented here is for general information purposes only. The Cranston Public Library name, in all forms and abbreviation, are the property of its owners and its use does not imply endorsement or opposition to any specific organization, product, or service. The content of this episode is the property of the Cranston Public Library and may not be reproduced without express written permission. Join us next week for more Downtime. say be kind rewind and then I was like that oh, no. <laughs> has nothing to do Go, with books going Thumbs full analog yeah <laughs>